Turn your Bibles now to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we are in verse 16. And we will go into chapter 9 and verse 5 today. So turn to 2 Corinthians 8, 16. hear the word of God, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, starting verse 16. And this is Paul speaking, and he says, But thanks be to God, who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother, who is famous among all the churches, for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with them we are sending our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches. The glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated, to say nothing of you, for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. This is the word of our God. Uh, Let's pray for his blessing. Lord, we thank you that you have ordained and you have taught us that It is through your word and through the teaching and preaching of your word that your church is built up into maturity. We pray, Lord, for your word to have the effect by your Holy Spirit to grow each one of us in our faith and our likeness to Christ and also together as a church. May we be edified, may we be built up as we hear your word. We pray for your spirit to help us to understand and especially to help us uh, to apply to our lives, that we might walk in the newness of life, walk in obedience to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, sadly, it's probably no surprise to uh, many of you that many churches, or at least many stories, come out about churches misusing money. It's not as uncommon as we wish that it would be. It might be in the case of pastors, uh, pastors making exorbitant salaries or just using church funds for their own uh, massive expenses. A couple of years ago, there was a story of a well-known pastor in the news 
he had to resign now uh, because of the scandals of him misusing money. And he was going on these hunting trips and he was getting the church to pay up to $20,000 for him to go on just one hunting trip. And he did that several times. So it could be pastors and their misuse of money. It can also be church members of different kinds, just the average church member or the usher or the treasurer or deacons in the church. Uh, They can embezzle money from the church. It seems like uh, this scandal is one of the more common ones that we find happening in churches. You, you hear in the news about other kinds of scandals, mainly with kind of well-known pastors who fall. But even though you don't see these always in the national news, it does seem that more commonly you hear about churches misusing money. And I myself personally haven't really known anybody who has fallen into these big scandals that you hear about in the news. But I have known personally of at least two that I can remember uh, where churches have misused money. One was a church member who took money that did not belong to that person. Uh, The other one was a, a pastor on staff who found a way to uh, embezzle the funds and use them for himself. Maybe this is common because of the nature of money. Money is uh, charming. Money hypnotizes you. You look at money and you want more and more. And the more you have, the more you want. The more you start to spend money, the more your lifestyle increases, and then you have to continue to maintain that lifestyle. Money is like a drug. You get a little taste of it and you just want more and more and nothing's going to stop you from getting it except for the Holy Spirit working in your life. Maybe this is a more common problem in churches because most misuse of funds or embezzling happens slowly over time. I was reading an article about how The average embezzlement takes place over seven years. And so maybe because a person can, uh, over a long period of time, be taking money, they continue to do it. And they take more and more and more until the time comes when they get caught. And so as time goes by, they think that they are getting away with it. It's one of those things that you think that you can hide But eventually, you'll get caught. Maybe it's more common because many people take small amounts of money over this long period of time. I heard one story about a church usher who would go up to take the offering in the balcony of that church. And as he was walking down from the balcony and the stairs, there was a part where people upstairs can't see you and people downstairs can't see you. And it was at that moment that he would just take a few things out of the offering plate and put, him, put them in his pocket. And so something that might seem small can happen quite often, quite commonly. People who might take money, they might say, well, I'm not really stealing the money because I'm going to pay it back. I'm just borrowing from the church and eventually I'll pay it back. And of course, they never do because money is like a drug. You just need more and more. So unfortunately, this is a somewhat common problem. Um, And so we need to be careful about how we handle money as a church. We need to be careful about who handles the money. We need to entrust the money in the church with wise people and with people who are trustworthy. People that have integrity and and honesty. And we need to understand that you can have all the right theology and all the right worship and yet still fall into this deceit and this trap 
of misusing money. And so we need to be careful about this. But on the other hand, many people look at these stories that happen in the news. They look at pastors and the kinds that make exorbitant amounts of money. And they say, why should I give to the church? Look at these churches. They are robbing people. They're just wanting to line their own pockets. And look at these pastors. These pastors preaching on money all the time. They just want your money so that they can go on their $20,000 hunting trips. I'm not giving to the church. These pastors, they just want to fleece the flock. And so we need to remember that even though there are abuses that happen with money in churches, the Bible does call us to give to the church. And Paul knows both of these things are a reality. And so we see both of these things come up in today's passage. Paul knows the temptations and dangers that can come with handling money. And so he puts things into place like accountability and trustworthy men to handle the money. But at the same time, Paul doesn't let the church off the hook. He doesn't give them an excuse to not give. He still urges the Corinthians to give generously. And so that's the point that we want to make today, is that both things are true. We ought to give to trustworthy causes. And the church ought to be trustworthy. And at the same time, we are called to give. We can't use bad examples as excuses to not give. So we're looking at this passage today. Uh, this is probably Sermon 2 of, of, part of, of three parts. We'll finish up chapter 9 next week, Lord willing. Uh, we, we don't always talk about money here. Uh, we're just going through 2 Corinthians. And here we are in these two chapters that relate to the collection or the offering that Paul is collecting to take to Jerusalem. So let's start by looking at part 1, uh, chapter 8, verses 16 to 24. And here we see that giving is a trust. Giving is a trust. We give to the church and to the causes of the kingdom. It's not just any money. It is special money, if you can say that. Uh, we give money, and that is um, valuable in the sight of God. And so we need to be careful about how we use the money that is given to the church. Uh, before we get into the, the accountability that Paul puts in place, let's start by looking at how he talks about this money in verse 19. He says, and not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches, talking about a brother here, to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our good will. So there at the end of verse 19, we see three aspects of this money, this gift, these offerings that are given uh, to the collection for Jerusalem. Giving in the context of the kingdom and for the church is an act of grace for the glory of the Lord and it shows our goodwill. And we talked about the act of grace last week. We'll just kind of summarize that again. But giving is an act of grace in the sense that the Spirit is the one who works in us by His grace so that we will give. We will be generous. Giving is not to earn any favor with God. The only way that you can have favor with God is through Jesus Christ and His righteousness in your place not because of anything you do, but by your faith in him. But when you come to know Jesus Christ, you want to grow in grace. 
and you want the spirit to work in you. And so you grow in one of these acts of grace, which is giving, giving generously. The spirit helps us as we mature to give. And so this is a special way to use your money. This is not just uh, buying something so that you can get something back. This is the spirit at work in your life. He says it's also for the glory of the Lord. It glorifies God when you give for his kingdom. One way it glorifies God is that you are giving so that the gospel can be preached. And that's very important. One of the main reasons you you give to a church is because you want the gospel to be preached in your church. And you want missionaries to be supported and sent out. And so this glorifies God as people go and preach the gospel. But it also glorifies God with how you're displaying his glory in your life when you give. You are giving and so you're saying with your money with your life, that your treasure is in heaven. It's not here on earth. There are plenty of amusements and entertainments and pleasures of this earth that you could spend your money on and that everybody else spends their money on. But you are deciding that you think the work of the gospel is important and more important than that entertainment that you could use your money on. And so... You sacrifice and you glorify God by showing the world that you believe this is more important than the things here on earth. Many of you probably know the famous quote by Jim Elliott, the missionary to Ecuador. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And so when you give, you are showing that you believe that. That you are giving something that you can't keep, your money. But you're gaining what you can't lose, which is treasure in heaven. So it glorifies God when you give. But then it also shows goodwill. In this case, the collection is for the famine in Jerusalem, the church that is starving and in need. And we read in Sunday school a few weeks ago, 1 John 3, which tells us that if you see your brother in need and you have the world's goods, how can the love of God abide in you if you close off your heart and if you close your wallet? You show goodwill many times by financially supporting the things that you care about and loving people when you give to their needs. So because this isn't just money, but this is an act of grace that glorifies God and it shows your goodwill, it is important how we use this money. And that's what the rest of this passage is about. It matters, first of all, when you give money to the church, that it gets to where it's supposed to go, the church bank account, that someone doesn't take that money on the way and take it for themselves. It also matters that once it is in that bank account, that it is used for what it's supposed to be used for. Uh, There are many uh, nonprofits that are officially charities, and people give to these charities And yet it's amazing to me that the CEOs of these charities are making millions of dollars. There are a lot of, I looked them up, there are a lot of hospitals that are officially non-profits, and yet the CEOs are making 10, 12 million dollars. There is the, the Met Museum in New York, where the director makes three million dollars a year. Now, okay, if that's a business, then that person wants to make $3 million, fine. But, but who wants, I personally don't want to give to a charity where I, where I know that my charitable giving is going to line the pockets of a millionaire. And so when we give to the kingdom, when we give to the church, we want to be sure our money is used well. Of all places, 
of all charities or of all nonprofits. It should be the church that sets the example for these things. That the money gets to where it's supposed to go and then that it's used for what it's supposed to be used for. And so Paul is concerned about this. So in verses 16 to 24, he's writing about how to administer this gift, this money. How, how can we administer money in a way that is faithful and honoring to God? And so he's going to mention that he's sending three men. The first man he's sending is Titus. Now, they're all going to come together, but he's the first one that he mentions. So look at verse 16. But thanks be to God, who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. Now remember that they had met up, Paul and Titus, in Macedonia. And Titus had given the report that the Corinthians are repenting and they want to renew this relationship with Paul. And he wrote about that in chapter 7. And now Paul is writing 2 Corinthians. And he's going to send Titus as the mailman to take 2 Corinthians to the church in Corinth. And so when Titus gets there, he's going to read this letter. Well, they're, they're already going to know that Titus is there, right? He's just standing right in front of them. But Paul writes these verses to explain why he sent Titus. Why is Titus standing right in front of you reading a letter about Titus? Well, because Paul wants them to know Titus has the same earnest care that I have for you. He shows his, his care for you because when I asked Titus, Paul says, to please go and help with the collection, Titus said, in, said God, put that thing in my heart. Before you even said it, I wanted to go and be a part of this collection and encourage the Corinthians to give. Because I love the Corinthians. And so this is what we know about Titus. He earnestly cares for the church. Paul says about himself in chapter 12, verse 14, uh, that he did not seek what was theirs, but he sought them. I seek not what is yours, but you. I'm not using you for your money. I want you, I want your heart, I want your growth in godliness. He said earlier in chapter 7, verse 2, we take advantage of no one. This was Paul's concern for them, not to take advantage of them. And so when he says in verse 16, Titus has this same concern that I have. He's saying, I'm sending you a guy who isn't in it for your money. I'm sending you a guy who isn't there to take advantage of you. He cares for you earnestly. So he's sending Titus. The second guy he's sending is a brother, a famous brother. We read about him starting in verse 18. With him, we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. So we don't know who this brother is. We don't know his name. There's no point in trying to find out. We know that he is a famous brother. So again, these three men would have showed up at the door at the church and they would have heard this letter and they would have thought, oh yeah, we know which guy he's talking about. The famous guy, the, the guy over there. He's the famous one. He's famous. He's well known. He's well known for his work in the gospel. I have the ESV. It adds that word preaching, but it's not really in the original writing that Paul writes. Paul doesn't say he's famous for preaching. He just says he's famous for the gospel. So in other words, in some way, this man is involved in ministry. He's involved in helping the cause of the gospel. 
He's not necessarily a preacher. We don't know. He might be an administrator. He might be a servant of the church. But he's well known as someone who cares about the gospel. He cares about the gospel. Not only that, but he's also been appointed by churches. And so he's well known as being a man who is trustworthy among multiple churches. He has a good reputation. So, so far, we want someone handling our money who cares about you, isn't going to take advantage of you, and someone who is approved, well-known, and trusted, and someone who cares about the gospel. Well, then there's one more guy who is being sent. He's down in verse 22, a third man. And with them... We are sending our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. We don't know who this other brother is either. He's anonymous. But what we know is that he's been tested and he's been found earnest. Be tested means that you have experienced, you have been trusted with a little, and you have passed the test. You've been faithful in a little, and so your responsibilities will increase more and more. You continue to be tested more and more, and as you pass the test, you then become trustworthy. In 1 Timothy 3, it gives the qualifications for deacons, and one of them is that they should be tested first and then become deacons if they prove themselves, if they pass the test. That's probably one of the main reasons is because they were the ones handling the money and they needed to be tested first. It's okay to test people first. In church ministry in general, It's okay to test people. Uh, There are problems in many churches where churches don't like to say no to people. And churches are dependent in many ways on volunteers. And so it's hard for some, when someone comes and they want to volunteer for something, to say no. But what's the point of having a test if If everyone always passes the test and no one can ever fail a test. There are stories of this happening in colleges where college students complain when they fail tests. And they want the professor to change the grades because they think everybody should be able to pass the test. Well, then what's the point of a test if everyone always has to pass? And so uh, it's okay for churches to have standards and to say that their character that's required, their qualifications that are required. We don't have, for example, a worship leader or anything. We don't need to have one. But imagine if someone said, God has called me to, to be the worship leader, but they can't sing. They can't sing at all. They're awful singers. It's okay to say to that person, No, God has not called you to that because he has not given you the ability to sing. And so you can apply that to any area of church ministry. You might be a true believer. You might be sincere in your desire to help. But don't be offended if that area is not your gifting. There are other areas where you can serve the church. So... Sometimes people do get offended by these tests, but this is biblical teaching. He's tested, but we also see he's earnest. Earnest means that he is serious. He cares, but he's also serious. He is serious about his care. It's intense. 
He cares about how the money is handled. He cares about the reputation of the gospel and of the church. He's going to take this thing seriously. You don't want people handling your money who are just very excited, but lighthearted about everything, making jokes about everything. Uh, When you go to your bank and you want to withdraw some money, you don't want your bank teller saying, ha, 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 actually, your money's gone. It disappeared. Our bank is like Silicon Valley Bank. We're closing down. We don't have your money. You, you don't want to hear that from your bank. You're not there for jokes. You just want your teller to give you your money. And so in the same way, when people are handling money in the church, they need to take that job seriously to be earnest. So we have these three brothers. Paul summarizes this in verse 23. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So they are there for the good of the church. They are the glory of Christ. He's probably referring to these messengers as the glory of Christ. Those who reflect Christ in their lives, in the way that they're going to do this work, who have the image of Christ stamped upon them, and you can see that, and so you will trust them with handling your church's money. So Paul sending the best of the best with these three guys, and in verses 20 and 21 he tells us, why this is such a big deal. He says in verse 20, we take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. So why Why go through all this trouble of sending three men so that no one should blame us? So that the way that the money is handled looks good in the sight of God and man. Most likely, this offering, uh, which is uh, being brought from uh, Macedonia, I believe, and then to Corinth, and then it's going to go all the way to Jerusalem. It's going to be a lot of money. And back then, there's no cryptocurrency. There, there aren't even bills. This is coins, probably silver coins. So you can, you can picture just sacks of silver coins loaded up on a donkey. And this donkey is clip-clopping, plodding along, from Corinth all the way through Greece and Turkey and Israel to Jerusalem. There's a lot that could go bad. You could get robbed. You could be the robber. You could stay up a few hours late at night while everyone is is sleeping, and you could reach into that sack and take a few coins and put them in your pocket and pilfer some money from this offering given to the church. In Paul's day, around these times, there was a story about uh, some Jews in Rome, and they were trying to convert people to Judaism in Rome. They managed to convert a wealthy man, so he was well known, and they took up this collection for the temple in Jerusalem. But when they took up the offering and they were going to Jerusalem, these guys, these Jewish guys, ran off with all the money. And so the emperor was so mad about this that the Romans were being conned that he, for a while, expelled all the Jews from Rome. And so this was the kind of thing that everybody knew about. This is the kind of thing that happens. People can take the money and run. And Paul wants to make sure that no one can blame these men. He aims, he says, at what is honorable in God's eyes and in the eyes of man. He's quoting here Proverbs 3, verse 4, 
which tells us that if you have faithfulness around your neck, you will find favor and good success in the eyes of God and man. You want to do what's right in the eyes of God. You know that God can see everything. You know that God knows if you steal. You know that you will have to give an account to God. But you also want to do what's right in the eyes of man. What if a church had one guy? He was the guy who counted all the money, took up all the offering, counted it all, took it all to the bank, dispersed all the money. What if he was completely honest, never lost a penny of everything that he did? He could, be, he could do that. That, that could be possible. And, and probably there are many churches where that is what happens. One person has all the money and he handles it well. But it doesn't look good. It's, it doesn't look good before others. It's easy to accuse one person of mishandling money. And so it's good to have practices where... You are not blamed in the eyes of man for doing something that looks bad. Did you know that even our confession talks about this? In chapter 1, paragraph 6, it's talking about scripture. Scripture is all we need. But then it has these few sentences where it says that there are some things that are common to human actions and societies and to the understanding and nature, which is logic, that should be practiced for governing the church. So there are no budgets in the Bible. Some people say, well, why do we have budgets? Budgets aren't in the Bible. Well, because it's common sense. It's common practice in society. And other practices to be honorable in the sight of man, like having more than one person, handling money like having audits to check on how the money is used like having pastors who have nothing to do with the money who can't touch the money they can't write checks they 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 don't count the money they have nothing to do with the money because it's honorable in the sight of man it's common sense according to human societies and so we should do what is honorable not only in God's eyes but before others so giving is a trust and when you give you should rightly be able to trust that your church will handle your money honestly but then second as Paul goes into chapter 9 he also tells us that we should give readily. We can't use scandals as an excuse to not give. We just make sure we're accountable with our handling. So in chapter 9, it is a new chapter, but he's still on the same topic about why he sends the brothers. He mentions it in verse 3 and in verse 5, why he's sending the brothers. So this part, verses 1 to 5, goes with the end of chapter Eight. First, he says he's going to send the brothers so that they will be ready. Look at verse 1, chapter 9. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. And Paul uh, gives them here a compliment. Uh, the word superfluous, that's a, that's a good word to, to use in casual conversation. Uh, superfluous means I don't have to say this. Uh, it's, it's a redundant. I don't have to write to you about the ministry of the saints, but I'm writing to you anyways. I don't need to tell you how ready you are. That's another way of saying, make sure you're ready. I don't have to tell you how ready you are. I know that you're going to be ready. Because I boast about your readiness to Macedonia. Remember that Paul boasted about Macedonia to the Corinthians in chapter 8. 
He told them how sacrificially they gave, and, and now he's boasting to the Macedonians about Corinth. Achaia, that's where Corinth is. Uh, uh, he says, Macedonians, the Corinthians, have been ready for a year. They've been saving up their money in the, in the church offerings and the treasury for, for a year, and they are eager to give to you. And so Paul's saying again, I boasted about how ready you are, so you better be ready when I get there. And so I am sending these three guys so that you will be ready when I get there. And so when he tells them to be ready, he says at the end of verse 2, your zeal has stirred up most of them. Paul's boasted about their zeal. They're excited to give. And their being excited to give is shown by the fact that they are going to be ready to give. And so we too, we should be excited to give. We should want to give to the work of God. But that also means we need to be ready to give. You prepare to give. You plan to give for the things that excite you. You plan vacations. You save up your money for a vacation. You go online and look at all the things that you can do, the places you can go, the hotel that you can stay at, and you can save up all that money. You plan for a birthday or for a holiday, and you save up your money for that, and you're excited for that day to come. And when that day comes, hopefully you're not all stressed out because you, you have overspent a bunch of money that you didn't have. Hopefully when that day comes, you are stress-free because you've been planning this for a long time. You've been saving up for this. And so you shell out the money that you have been planning to spend for the last year or so. We get excited about things and then we plan to spend money on those things and so, in the same way, we should be zealous to give. We're going to talk next week about how we should be cheerful givers. Sometimes people think that that means I can only give when I'm in a good mood. If I'm not in a good mood, I'm not going to give. Well, it's not what it means. Uh, if you are excited about a cause, then you plan to give. And then on that day, you might not be in the best mood, but you give because you've already planned in your zeal to give. So we should be excited to give, and so we need to be ready to give. And this is what Paul mentions again in verses 3 and 4, being ready but I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. What if Paul shows up at the door one day and says, all right, I need the collection. We need, to, we need to go to Jerusalem now. I'm leaving tomorrow. And they say, uh, we got to get the treasurer. Uh, the, the, the money is all locked up in the savings account. We don't have it ready. Paul would say, oh, that's awkward. This is embarrassing. I, I boasted about you guys to the Macedonians. And, and I'm, I'm going to go with nothing. So be ready. And so in the same way, we need to be ready plan to give don't lock up all your money in your 401k or your 30-year bond or your 10-year cd sure you can save but if all your your money is locked away and you're not ready to give you have a problem especially when when needs might arise we need to be ready to give we need to have a budget and in our budget, we should budget that we give. We should do what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16. When he told them, on the first day of the week, set aside 
a little bit of what you have, some of what you have, as you may prosper, so that it will be ready when he comes. And the principle there is that you give from the top. You give as soon as you get what uh, you earn, your paycheck. You do what Proverbs 3 verse 9 says. You honor God with the first fruits of your harvest. And so Paul is telling them that they give on the first day of the week because it's the Lord's day and they're taking up the offering, but also because if you don't give on the first day, then you're going to spend it on another six days. You will find a way to spend your money if you don't set it aside to give. That's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying what Proverbs 23 says. Money has wings. Money flies away. Your money will fly out of your bank account if you don't set it aside purposefully to give. There will be a car part that you just really need to buy that week. There will be this thing at Hobby Lobby that's on this mega sale and you have to get it that day or else you're not going to get it 70% off and so you have to buy it. But if you set it aside for giving... That money will not fly away. Now, I'm not saying that you have to give every single Sunday. I wouldn't make a rule about that, although I do think that that's wise. But if you do your budget once a month or you get paid every two weeks, give right at the beginning so that your money doesn't fly away with its wings. So, We need to be ready to give. And then finally, he says, we need to keep our commitment. Be zealous, be ready, keep your commitments. Verse 5. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. They need to keep their promise. Paul says he doesn't want it to be an exaction, a pulling teeth, yanking money out of them, yanking it out of their pockets when he shows up and they have nothing because they're not ready. And so they have to go searching through the couch cushions to find some money because it's the Apostle Paul after all, he's showed up at our door and he's, he's, we promised that he, we would give to him. But now we, we spent it on, on everything. And, and, and you tell your wife that you need to give Paul the collection. And she says, but I don't buy rice tomorrow. And there's no money for rice if you give that away. And so you have to get, pull it out of the cushion somehow. And, and that's all you've got to give for the collection for Paul. That's not the way he wants you to give. Not as an exaction, pulling it out of you, but willingly. You want to give. You're excited to give. You're ready to give because you made a promise. You planned. You prepared. And when that day comes, you're ready. And so we need to make commitments Keep our commitments to give. When you're a member of a church, you commit to support the church. That's normal among pretty much all churches. Um, It's it's a biblical concept. It's not because we need a steady stream of income or we're a subscription service and we we depend on on your giving. It's because you're a Christian. And you are to give as a part of your growth in grace, and you are called to support your church. And if you commit to the church, you're also committing to financially support your church. And so when you make a promise, a covenant commitment, you should keep your promise. And if you don't give, don't 
Don't get all upset and say, well, you're just being a bunch of legalists. All this stuff about tithing in the Bible. Let's have a big argument about tithing. No, it's not, a, it's not about the argument of tithing. It's not legalism. It's you made a commitment. Just keep your commitment. Nobody's forcing you to join a church. But Christ calls you to join a church. And Christ calls you to support the church. Give willingly. So you've probably heard, I'm sure, of a trust fund where you set up an account that is going to go to someone, probably a a child. And when you give to a trust fund, it essentially is no longer your money. And it's called a trust fund because it belongs then to a trustee who is going to give an account for the money and manage the money until it's passed on to that other person. We can think of giving to the kingdom and giving to the church as giving to a trust fund. When we give, we give because we want it to go to the designated church. We are trusting that it's going to get there. And we're trusting that it's going to be used for the purposes of the gospel. When we give, we in a sense, we relinquish control. We, we, we can't control what's going to happen. We're trusting that it will be used well. And so we as a church, we have the responsibility of being trustworthy with the money. And you as a Christian, you have a responsibility of giving, giving generously, giving willingly. Let's pray that God would help us and bless us so that we might be able to do these things. Let's pray. Lord, we recognize that all that we do have is a trust from you. We pray, Lord, that you would make each of us men and women of honesty, integrity, and faithfulness to you. We pray that you would also make us zealous, excited, and ready, and generous. Pray that you would do this so that you would be honored, so that Christ would be glorified, the work of the gospel might continue and might spread and might grow. We pray, Lord, for your act of grace in our hearts that would result in our actions of obedience and love responding to your generosity. Help us, Lord, to act honestly, uh, to fulfill the trust that you have given us. And we depend upon you the work of your spirit in us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.